that feels like balance, right? Like yeah. not every stop along the way, everybody will be excited about. For the young kids, just give them a lot of their favorite junk food. And I think for science, yeah. I, if I give uh, my son a gelato going somewhere he really doesn't like, he's fine. He's junk <laughs> food. You said gelato. Oh my gosh. That was so cute. Gelato? Isn't gelato junk food? I mean, maybe. <laughs> it sounds like the classiest food. Apparently it's Santiago. <laughs> gelato is junk food. You didn't food. mean like M&M's. I was oh, thinking no. Cheetos. No, right. we don't do that. We don't do no, our, our junk food definition is very different. Very different. If I give my son gelato, he's willing to do anything. I mean, who amongst us would say no? Welcome to Attached, a podcast about the loved ones we're attached to and the good, the bad, and the ugly advice about those relationships that maybe we shouldn't be so attached to. We here at Attached want to share ways to enhance your relationships and debunk all that bad relationship advice using science. I'm Dr. Patricia Robertson out of the University of Tennessee. And I'm Dr. Sarah Woods at UT Southwestern Medical Center. And I'm Dr. Sessa Nagash um, from San Diego State University. Today, Sesson will bring us a conversation about live with Kelly and Mark. Uh, I really do think I should be on morning television. I think I could nail it. And working with your spouse. Then we're going to jump into our academic deep dive segment and discuss a brand spanking new article titled, How Do Own and Siblings Gender Shape Caregivers' Risk of Perceived Care-Related Criticisms from Siblings? I think this was going to touch me real deep, you guys. And then in good or bad advice, we're going to talk about tips from the Washington Post about, Sesson, are you ready for this one? Are you ready? How to plan a family vacation. Oh, this is well-timed. <laughs> if you have any advice that you'd like to talk to us about, send it to us. You can email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet us, Facebook us, Instagram us, all at attachpodcast, or go straight to the source, attachpodcast.com and send us a message for some bonus content uh, from good or bad advice and to support this little old pod of ours please consider going to our patreon page patreon.com attached and becoming a patron as always wherever you listen or watch this podcast please rate review and subscribe so really good pod that we're gonna have today i'm looking forward to it getting towards the end of this season but before we get to all of that uh, funness how are you guys doing what's up tell me stories What's going on? Woods. <laughs> I was waiting to be called on. I mean, I know what the sequence of events is, but I was like, well, is it not me today? I don't know. Um, what, what have I been up to? Okay, so um, my daughter, uh, for her end of the year requirement, has to do a presentation at school, like a lesson for wow. the whole class. I what? Know. That's so cool. I know it is so cool. It's part of like their graduating third grade requirement. And <clears throat> she's chosen a real topic. Not that other children have chosen not real topics. I realize how that just sounded. Well, there's like a child oh! who's going to teach the class how to like um, make taco bubble pizza. Or uh, there's another child who's what like, What is that? Gonna... Taco bubble pizza? I haven't looked it up and oh. I might have it wrong. It could just be how what I'm understanding my daughter's saying and it's not really, I don't know. Oh, but another child's like cupcake decorating instead, like how to's, oh. but sure, sure. wants to give a talk, like a lesson. Oh. That maps and on. So, yeah. 
sure like does. mother like child <laughs> it sure does and um i mean to the point where i said okay now let me understand um how long do you have for this lesson and she said sure. only an hour and i said oh, only oh I my god i so love her because in my head i was like Oh, it is only that. It's only that much time. How much can you possibly teach on endangered animals and how to save them? I know. What? So she asked oh my gosh. a week a little ago activist. if we could oh go gosh. to the library and take out. But I finally had to say to her, how excited do you want me to be? Because I feel very excited, but I don't want to get so excited that I like, you know, ruin this for you, that I scare yeah. you and she looks me in the eyes and says, I want you to get very excited. I said, fantastic, let's do this. <laughs> so we went to the library. And at one point she said, there's got to be a rule about how many books you can take out. I said, why would there be a rule? There's no rule. Th- these are books we can borrow. We just, she's like, well, I won't even be able to get through them all in the next week. I said, we'll extend them. We'll renew them if we need. I mean, ooh, I know. So we are um, in the process of, we've organized her learning objectives, what she wants the kids of in course, her class naturally. to really Oh. learn and um then within There's... that what each of the pieces you want and like she's got incredible creative ideas she doesn't oh want to just tell them how to help she wants them to learn first how other people in the world are helping endangered yeah. animals so yeah. show some videos so they can get inspired sure. she wants them to like commit to things that they can do and who else they're going to talk to about oh. how they can be helpful oh my she gosh. told me yesterday she's going to teach about habitat degradation and i said mm. what She's like, I don't know, it was in one of those books. And I'm like, you're not going straight to sleep at night, are you? You're going to the library pile. <laughs> and anyways, so I am extremely excited about this next phase. And I'm proud. Have to probably oh. be careful. Uh, I thought uh, you were going to say, I'm very excited for me. <laughs> well, I mean, I am. <laughs> I am definitely I'm like, I don't understand how softball works. I'm constantly like, oh, man, thinking that. The umpire made a wrong call, and then other people looking at me like, "No, that's how it works." I'm like, I don't, I don't. It's like, why? There shouldn't even be this many rules. What's happening? Um, but this I get. Like, I <laughs> library books for research. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Yeah. How many library books did she end up checking out? We didn't count. I think we estimated twenty-five, maybe. I love it so much. <laughs> it's a. We had a lot of stacks to sort through last night when we were seeing which one would give us which information for naturally yeah she wanted to break down how many minutes for each air i mean i was like oh. all in, yeah, all all in. in. <laughs> she's gonna be at your next uh conference with you i mean wouldn't you want to learn about- i mean i'm excited 100 yeah, percent. yeah I'm especially with objectives 100 percent. she wants them to learn about how even small changes can lead to big changes and i was like <laughs> so beautiful so, I hope you can very... record it. I don't know what the rules are on Ooh, that. But... I don't know either. Or what device I'd use to capture the full hour because you can't miss a minute. We could watch it back. <laughs> yeah. Give me the next pod. We can go through so, and celebrate it. Yeah, I'm working on calibrating. And maybe that's what I've been focusing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love that story. Sasson, what's going on with you? Um, I went on my first writing retreat very recently. Ooh, okay. I love that I for you. I've never retreated. Um, no, it should be called a writing advance. Advance. Oh, I guess I never thought about the language piece. You know, for me. <laughs> she takes well, it so seriously, though. I know, right? I, I love it. Everything. 
honestly, let me just say this. It like really made me want to re-strategize my whole like approach to work. Like go on. Everything I do should come in retreat form. Like I think I'm much more productive. I'm more happy. Like all these realizations that came to be um Mm. retreat. Like I just think the retreat style is like I get to take a break and eat. I like there's a little social time. There's like it's such a balance, right? Like that's what I'm constantly seeking. And so I was like, this Mm -hmm. is great. Mm. And then of course, because I don't know how to take something and let it just be, I started thinking about how do I create more retreats for other people? How do I, um, you know, make this a thing that other people really do as well and promote this whole thing. And of course do a lot more of it and do it across different groups that I work with and connect with. How can I turn this into a couple's partner thing too? Because, you know, like turning into like a weekend getaway with my partner where we could like work and relax at the same time. Like it became a whole, like, <laughs> of course, something I overthought, um, still overthinking, <coughs> but I have to admit, like I felt really good about um, having spent that time being productive and relaxing in that intentional way. And I got to hang out with new people. That was really nice. So I've been really moving towards the goal of like trying to re-engage my social um, network, but also like built that into like a professional area capacity too. So, yeah. You should do retreats. That should be your new small business is like just do retreats for friend groups. I was, yeah. I was thinking like if I had money, like money, money, I'd buy like a house in like Temecula or something and like make it a retreat house where people can come and just retreat and do activities. And then, um, you know, just enjoy. Like I think just giving people the time to be really productive in like a, a way where they're not distracted by all the things in their life, but also just give them connection with people. Yeah, It's like a good balance. So I'm very excited about retreating now. Like I'm already thinking I'm planning my next retreat. You are planning a retreat for our podcast. I was thinking we could do something. Yes. In August is where I was thinking this week. Okay. I was like, when might I be available August. in the summer? And now I have to check with the two of you. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll plan it offline. And let the team know. Yeah. Uh, I'm here for retreats sometimes. Uh, my job does retreats, writing retreats, uh, but I don't necessarily want to do that. So <laughs> for other reasons. Anyway, I love the retreat idea with you guys. I will do it uh, 110%. So as you guys know, um, my middle child, my lovely son, has started soccer. He had a makeup game last Tuesday and um, he, the coach for some reason played them the first two quarters. He usually pays them every other quarter and then not the last two quarters. So he usually, every, all kids get two quarters, but he played him the first two. So by the end of it, he was like tired. And at the start of the second quarter, he started to like really slow down and look kind of upset and like. He didn't score a goal, so I thought maybe he's upset about that. But he was also looking really distracted. Like when the ball was being thrown in, he was just, his body was turned and looking the opposite direction. And I had to shout and say like, eyes on the ball. Like, look at the ball. Like not at the stars or the clouds or what have you. So anyway, he comes off the field kind of all pouty. And I was like, hey, man, you did a great job. Like, what's going on? You okay? 
And he goes, I miss the ice cream truck. And sure oh. enough, at the beginning of the second quarter, the ice cream truck had gone by. And so the entirety of the second quarter, when I thought oh. he was either tired, exhausted, or sad that he hadn't made a ball. No, he was just lamenting oh. that he could so. not pick the ice cream truck. Oh, so nice. that's where his head is at. He it. said he enjoys soccer practice, but he doesn't really enjoy the games that much. So, mm. but he wants mm -hmm. to do it again because he enjoys practice a lot. I was like, all right, oh whatever, man. I love it. It's so... I love it. Uh, it. There's something about that sound, that ice cream sound that like really like can yeah. shift your focus and you're, you know, like. I. But of a yeah. team of 10 boys, he was the only one. <laughs> Other ones had their head in the game, <laughs> but not. But mine. I like that he wasn't distracted. Just like when he heard it, he no, retained it that disappointment. Like it just nothing could sort of redirect it no. the whole time. I love like, it oh. so much. <laughs> oh whatever, it's fine. It was just I is was the like, ice cream oh. truck even like a tradition that y'all have around soccer games, or he just heard one and was like, "Oh my gosh!" No, I mean there used to be, and this is a clever place to place an ice cream truck. There used to be one that would come outside of his school at like release time. So like oh. in the end of spring, like we would, uh, you know, pick him up from school and sure. walk and go get a snow cone or whatever, and then continue so he knows on the our sound. way. He's like very familiar ritual. with the sound, oh. and so he's saw it at soccer and he was like oh it is time i know what that is <laughs> i love it so funny that's cute <laughs> first up pop and culture we learn about relationships from our friends and families but a lot of what we think about love and relationships come from what we see in pop culture for this first segment we take a moment to highlight events in pop culture that influence people's lives and how we view relationships Super interested about this segment, Sessa, and what you got for us. Yes, so today I'm going to talk about live with Kelly and Mark. That's um, not Regis and Kathy Lee. It's not. I was going to go back to where no. it originated. I think it was Regis Philman, I think, and Kathy Lee Gif. I don't know why I'm trying to Gifford, get their names, yeah. but yes, the, the, the originals. And then uh, Kelly Ripa came onto the show a long time ago now and um since then has had a couple of co-hosts and um for those of you who watch morning tv um you likely have heard that her new co-host is her husband um mark consuelos who's um she's been married to for over 25 years they met actually um on all my children which i was watching at the time <laughs> when they met um when they were teenagers like late teens maybe like Wow. Just early adults. Yeah, they. I mean, and she was actually, I think, um, young, but not teen teens. I'm talking about like 17, 18, 19 kind of thing. But they've been together a really, really long time, have a couple kids together. And um, they're now, you know, getting back to working together. And um, I don't know, there was something about hearing that that made me go... <sighs> oh no, is that a good idea? It wasn't an instant like, oh, that's cute, right? So I think for some of us, there is that like question of, um, is it a good idea to mix business and personal? Um, is it a good idea to like begin a business with a person that you're married to or in a long-term committed relationship with? Um, and so, yeah, I thought I'd bring it up. I know 
For years, she's talked about her partnership on the show, and now he's there to talk about the relationship for himself. So that whole dynamic should be interesting to watch. But that's not this typical way in which it looks, right? Um, Either you have um, two people who met at work and, you know, decide to be together and continue to stay in that workspace, and perhaps one of them goes up um, for promotion and ends up being... Um, more in a managerial um, position over the other or they have a business together that they start or at some point um, come together on and and I'm just curious to see what the impact um, is on the personal side of it more so like than the professional implications associated with it this time around. I was trying to look at some statistics and found you know about 22% of um, folks who are married in the United States say they met their partner um, their spouse at work, right? So that's a pretty sizable number, if you ask yeah. me, right? Um, and then um, some federal data shows that about forty-three percent of small businesses are family businesses, and you know, about fifty-three percent of those businesses um, include um, one of the partners who's sort of in a managerial position that um, where they do day-to-day management. That includes the other spouse. So, I think a sizable number people in the United States are doing this, right? Thing of coming yeah. together at work and then also having a personal relationship at home. And um, I was trying to find some also data to sort of help us understand like, okay, what are some of the implications? Are couples who are connected on the business side of things um, more likely to have successful, happy relationships than those who don't? And, you know, the data suggests that there's not really any significant differences, which is surprising to me again because like I said my initial reaction was like I don't think that's a good idea being a couples therapist I don't know that I've ever had um, a couple who work together to be honest so that was like also surprised by that number so a lot of what I'm talking about today comes from just not a place of not knowing as much but just sort of trying to dive a little deeper into the data to see what that looked like Yeah, and it could be that the people who choose to form a family business or, you know, a couple who choose to form a business already have a style of communication or interaction that would be conducive to being around each other probably literally 24-7. And that's why you're not seeing them in couples therapy because they're just doing so well. They're so amazing. (laughs) So amazing. So great. I mean, I was- No science to support that. No science. (laughs) But I imagine that there is a selection effect there sure I bet you there is as well I mean I was thinking okay what are some of the concerns that I sort of uh, would you know put out there or like think are important for folks to consider one is like having a sense of what comes first is it your relationship or is it like the business Mm. part of it it's one thing when you two are in a work environment where neither of you are like stakeholders in the company or like own the company right but when you own something together there's like a certain level of you know um attention and time and energy that has to be put into the professional side and i think it's easier said than done to say like put the personal ahead of the professional right especially if like you know you have everything tied into that business so i think like figuring out what that balance needs to look like is really important um and then like those undefined roles like and like maintaining those roles like both personal and professional and how that can get really Mm. messy i think that's also something and how much of the personal or work stuff do you bring home right and vice versa like what kind of boundaries 
to set there. Um, and then the idea of like spending all that time together, is that a good thing? Like, I think there's something to be said for having your space and having other relationships, right, to um, lean towards. Um, and then just different ways of handling pressure at work. Some people want to come home and talk about things that are going on at work and others want to, you know, find ways to compartmentalize that or go to other people. So if you have really different styles of addressing the work stuff, like if your complaint is the person you're working with and that's your partner, it's a little tricky to figure out how to seek support, I think. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's just quite a few things. And then the studies that I did come across, you know, some of the um, information that I found suggests while it does reduce like income inequities in the household, um, particularly for women, they experience um, it being a little more challenging because um, they um, don't feel like they have so much independence when they mm -hmm. are working with their partner um, than when they're working, you know, separate from them. It's like it's just feeling a little bit more managed in both their personal and professional when they do have both. Yeah, and then there was a lot of other gender stuff that came up, but I do think it requires a lot of intention is what I figure, right? It, that you have to be really, really clear about the boundaries that you're setting in yeah. the relationship and have a really healthy style of communication because inevitably issues will come up and those aren't the kind of things you can just sweep under the rug. Um, otherwise your business suffers or your personal relationship could really suffer or both, right? So, right. yeah. Thinking couples who do have uh, a business together probably fall into one of two camps again not based in science just knowing how uh, families work uh one amazing communication effective uh you know direct non-reactive communication styles where they can get through conflict or the other camp is an amazing capacity to sweep things under the rug <laughs> just endless rugs in their in their house <laughs> Um, those are the two camps that I can see. Um, my in-laws, uh, have a business together or had a business together. They've now, you know, are retired, but they have very good direct communication and it like, uh, feeds into like how they also kind of deal with change in family dynamics, I guess, for lack of a better word. Like one Christmas, they announced to all of the kids, it's just my husband and his brother and the in-laws, um, you guys are now at an age, you have grandchildren. We are no longer going to give gifts to the kids. We'll only be gifts to the grandkids at Christmas time. And we're like, okay. <laughs> like, she does it very directly. You know what her intentions are. You know it's not like meant to hurt any feelings, but you now know things are going to change. And here's the specific change that we are doing. Fantastic. Thanks. High five. Cool. Now I know. We're not doing gifts. Easy peasy. So like it definitely is a much different communication style than I ever experienced growing up. Like I don't think my family could ever own a business together, but like that communication style I could see could also be very effective. Right? It was either cultivated through owning a business or it was uh, effective for the business to be successful. I'm not sure, but anyway, it's interesting what you're saying. I know you just said that, PR, but your mother and father and or stepfather also work in the same field, right? 
Yes, they're in the same department, but they're not um, bosses of one another. It's not like they own the same. My parents are very enmeshed. Like it works for them because of that. They can drive to work together. They can go to lunch together. They can drive home together. Wow. They can do their farm together. Like they are like really, and it's like what they both like. Like it works really, really well for them. Mm. Um, but they don't, I mean, I guess you could call their farm a small business, but it's not like it's their livelihood. It's kind of like a mm. hobby that they both have. So their lives are, they really like it when they're completely um, in sync. But at work, like their full-time paid job, they're not each other's bosses. It's almost like they're coworkers, right? They're faculty on, and their offices are on different floors. So interesting. Yeah. Indeed. So one work product doesn't affect the other technically in that sense. Yeah. And I don't think they are often on the, you know, papers, publications or grants together either. That's fascinating to me, though. People can do all of that together. You know how you just have a sense of you and your partner and you're like, mm, we couldn't do that. Like, nope. I already know that that's not. I know. Option. Yeah. So you sure. don't do that. Yeah. So then you choose. We are not going to work side by side. We are not going to do a business. together. No, just different personalities in that way. Right. Like that, we show up differently in our work. I think I have a very particular sort of way of preferring things work wise. And I think my partner does, too. So it's like. You just sort of know where you, it, it could work and it could be a compliment and we could be bringing both of our strengths or where it, the energy could just not really, yeah, be a good idea. So. Yeah, I think it's a big leap. I mean, having a small business is a huge stressor, right? Like, so I can imagine how that could, if uh, you don't have a strong foundation in a relationship that could really set to add undue pressure and strain to that relationship that could really um, show existing cracks as like big canyons potentially. Yeah. Or it just, you could have a good foundation, but you just don't have like the personalities in that yeah. particular area of your life. So it's like, I can really appreciate what he does in his work, but I could never do that. Right. Like, it's just like, as long as it's separate, we're good. <laughs> but then I couldn't adopt his style and he probably wouldn't want to adopt mine. Yeah. Any take-homes you want to put in there, Sesson, before we go off to the next segment? I wish Kelly and Mark the best and I hope that they identify um, good healthy boundaries for how to talk about the relationship on national TV. It makes me... <laughs> I have no investment in them as a couple, but I can imagine, um, you know, it could get a little messy if they're not careful. So they just started this uh, co-hosting gig. So we'll see where they are in a year in terms of like how messy it, it gets. They're already getting some complaints that they're sharing too much and <laughs> crossing some lines. So me being as big as I am on boundaries, I'm already like, no, I can never watch that show. Not me. It may just shoot your anxiety through the roof. Yeah, I just have to stay away. Stay away from a show I don't even watch already. So yes. <laughs> <laughs> what a takeaway. Fantastic. In today's academic deep dive, we're discussing a new article, How Do Own and Siblings Gender Shape Caregiving Risk and Perceived Care-Related Criticisms from Siblings? Recently published in the Journal of Gerontology, this research, led by Dr. Marissa Rurka at the University of Michigan, explores adult children caring for their aging parents 
and the often greater caregiving burden experienced by daughters than sons. While caregiving can be a gift, giving us an opportunity to get closer to the older adults in our lives while giving aging parents critical support at a time when they need it most, caregiving is also very hard work in my experience, both emotionally and physically, which can take a toll on caregivers' mental health. Earlier research has also found the burdens of caregiving can be experienced unevenly with daughters often reporting more stress related to providing more hours of care more often and more types of care tasks on average than sons. But these authors point out that these primary stressors the specific demands of caregiving often give way to secondary stressors, which can be just as distressing. Secondary caregiving stressors may include family conflict, guilt, and threats to how caregivers see themselves and understand their role in the world. The research we're discussing today explores the secondary stressors of care-related criticisms from siblings, which can also be felt differently by daughters or sons who are caregiving. In other words, the authors explain that daughters and sons often have expectations for themselves as caregivers and can also be held to different standards. While daughters are more likely to believe that they have an obligation to caregive and work to meet all of their parents' needs, sons may be more likely to believe that they have, quote, legitimate excuses for limiting caregiving efforts like work-related obligations and wait until their parents ask for help before they step in. Cultural beliefs that women are, quote, more naturally skilled at care work coupled with these greater expectations that we have for daughters as caregivers may mean that daughters are also more likely to be on the receiving end of criticism for the care that they do from their siblings. All right, Sarah, this feels like it probably affects a ton of families, including my own with aging parents right now. So talk me through this. What did the study find and uh, how can I apply it to Specifically, my family. <laughs> yes, yours. Specifically. <laughs> um, well, I do think uh, what's really interesting about this project is probably anyone listening can sort of immediately think about how does it apply to either where my family's at now or in the future. Um, and what I think is really fantastic about what this project did is it's mixed methods research, meaning they did some surveys and um, some averages to look at. Uh, numbers wise how this plays out for these families as well as qualitative work to interview these families to really sort of understand how would they help us to explain what we're finding in the numbers and they did this with um, information from 408 caregivers who had provided assistance with at least one activity of daily living um, like um, bathing uh, grocery shopping cooking toileting um, and or uh, provided some support for a serious illness or injury in the last five years who also had at least one living sibling across 231 families in Massachusetts where wow. mom was 65 to 75 at baseline. So it's a longitudinal project. They categorized the primary caregiver if they helped mom the most or at least tied with another sibling. Uh, and then secondary caregivers provided support, but just not as much. They asked these siblings, has your sibling or have your siblings ever been critical of the ways in which you help your mother, including how you help or about the amount of time that you spend 
helping. And then they looked at sibships, which was a new word for me. I don't know that I'd seen that before. Uh, and I've read a lot of family research and sibships was new, um, but they categorized sibships by gender. So instead of like friendships, they're talking about sibling relationships. Um, and they looked at families that had all sons, predominantly sons, relatively balanced gender across the siblings, predominantly daughters or all daughters. Um, to look at whether not only the gender of who was providing the caregiving, which is more likely to be females, mm-hmm. they found that in this project too, um, but also who is in your family, whether their gender identities also impacted the kind of oh. um, criticism that they thought that they were experiencing, that they perceived that they were experiencing. Um, and what they found was that daughters in predominantly son sibships, so most of their siblings are sons, brothers, are significantly less likely to perceive criticism from their siblings than daughters in families with a higher proportion of other daughters. So if I'm um, a daughter who's doing the primary caregiving and there's more women across my siblings and my family, Mm. uh, and this was a range. So for um, women who had predominantly brothers, 3% 3% said that they perceived that their siblings were critical of their caregiving. If it was about half and half, daughters and sons, 13% of those primary caregivers said it was. If it was predominantly daughters, 15%. In all daughter families, all girls, all my sisters, 26% of the primary caregivers who were female said that they were experiencing criticism about what they were doing. For sons who were primary caregivers, the likelihood of receiving criticism about that caregiving from their siblings was not related to the gender of their siblings. Wow. So the qualitative interviews that they did, I think, provide a lot of color about what they're seeing in terms of these first reports. And what they found was that in these predominantly son sibships, the gender expectations get sort of concentrated on a single daughter or maybe a pair of daughters who are, it's easier for them to say this person or these two people are more clearly like best suited for this role Mm. and their brothers become passive sort of grateful supporters. So there's less conflict across the board because this person is not only supposed to do it, they're clearly supposed to do it. Um, And whereas if there's more daughters and like more sisters, there's more of that shared expectation. We're less able to rely on gender alone to explain who is supposed to do this caregiving work. And the sisters then have more claims to who is actually the primary caregiver. It's less clear who has the authority to make the decisions. Whereas if it's just me and I am um, a daughter doing the caregiving, that my brothers are like, yeah, 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 do what you need to do. Like, you have the authority, you're making the decisions, you're very close with mom. That was another factor. They're clearly very close. It's who mom is comfortable with. But a bunch of daughters, that was not clear. Um, And so when there was disagreement about how should we approach caregiving, which you hear in families all the time, right? This sibling wants to put them in supportive nursing facility. These siblings want nothing to do with that. It's usually the reverse. There's a sibling who in my experience anyways, wants to do a lot of this caregiving at home. And all the other siblings are saying, oh my gosh, just put them in a nursing facility. And um, if you're not going to do that, then we're not going to help because we are not choosing for this to be our lives, right? From what they had found, those kinds of disagreements when they're happening really uh, contributed to 
we're not really sure who's in charge and therefore if we're less likely to agree about that it's causing more conflict and these daughters are more likely to perceive that their siblings are critical of them and they describe also sometimes camps forming in the family like they start to sort of gang up on each other Um, and in general uh, daughters being held to this higher caregiving standard we think of them uh, they're describing in these families um the daughters having very nurturing personalities, again, being closer to mom. So the secondary stress for daughters was far greater, but it was partially explained by who are my siblings and what are their gender identities, which is really interesting. I think for me as a family therapist who really uh, likes to work with families with aging family members, we often think about um, either working with aging family members uh, or older adults Um, in the context of maybe the older adult is the patient and maybe who is the primary caregiver. It's easier for care systems to identify that person, but that is ignoring how families actually operate and these complex sibling relationships. We do not have a lot of whole family interventions that take into account what that looks like and the conversations that are actually happening at home. No matter whose name it is on the list of the medical power of attorney, for example, if there's lots of people involved at home that have different opinions, we need to be able to support what that looks like and intervene and when we need to. Um, but in general, I mean, this criticism can take a real toll on caregivers and navigating caregiving as a family is not easy. Um, criticism is not going to help in the long run. And women, it appears, are especially hard on each other, given those culturally based expectations which have probably integrated into like family norms about what we expect from you and so I think it's probably really important that when there is caregiving going on in a family as much as possible to really sort of focus on being gentle and understanding Mm. and kind and forgiving rather than sort of digging in your heels about what's right yeah like I'm in this camp and you're in this camp and this is what's right and this is what you're choosing to do, that approach to care is wrong. And that can really get pretty intense pretty quickly. Uh, and also, I think it can be helpful to sort of sometimes, if appropriate, reframing the behavior you might be on the receiving end of, that you're all stressed. And it's not necessarily true that your sibling is intending to cause pain, even if they are causing pain. And so can you talk with them about that process and how you all are working together? Mm. Um Because I think what's important to remember is that when you're doing, especially intensive caregiving, everyone who's doing that caregiving of aging parents, we eventually lose those family members. Mm. That's part of this process of aging together. Um, And sort of being very critical of each other, um, I think you start to risk that at the end, you're going to lose that family member you're caring for. Uh, the risk could also be that you're going to lose more family members on top of it. And is that really the outcome that would fit your family best? I think a lot of people would not say that that's the case. So thinking about yeah. how you can work on how you work together along the way. Or we would hope helpful. that they don't think that that's the case. But I can see if this gets too far down the rabbit hole of digging in your heels, these engraved kind of behaviors, it could feel like that is the best option. So before it gets to that point, try and um, reframe all of the suggestions that Sarah did, because I can see and I have seen it in families um, Mm -hmm. go this way for sure. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's hard. And you're not just 
especially among siblings, you're not just those conversations about how to care for mom. In this case, it sounds like it was all mom was the was caregiver. Yeah, in so this it, case, yep. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because it helps the, the that added gender differences of mm-hmm. taking for mom yep. or dad. But oftentimes those conversations or arguments about how to correctly care for mom are not just that surface conversation, right? right? It's ingrained uh, conflicts or fights or strains or stressors that you've had your entire life, some stemming from childhood, right? That things that, so sometimes those conversations you have to untangle, not just the issue Mm -hmm. at hand, but also the underlying um, hurts and um, emotional injuries that um, have been maybe throughout your whole entire life. So sometimes it is quite a lot to detangle. Yeah. And as you shared earlier, Patricia, it can be an opportunity for healing. Just because it was historically hard doesn't mean that in this process it needs to be hard, but right. it can easily get harder because this is, you're right, bumping up against all kinds of values of how we take care of each other, how we show each other that we love each other, how we communicate. And even if you've appointed one person in charge, the goal is not to rule out all your other siblings' voices either. Um, It doesn't help you as a primary caregiver to receive criticism, but it also is important that you all feel like you have the ability to contribute and for those sons to engage in ways that are helpful. So we're not just leaving daughters to do the brunt of this either, Um, but really, really interesting research on sibling relationships and how that affect i mean the number of caregivers who are adult children just is ballooning and will continue to balloon it's a huge amount of families right now um i'm like sitting here trying to think about all this data and something that comes to mind for me is like the like social location of these individuals like Mm -hmm. what their demographics are because i think about how much this influences the way not only they perceive their responsibility of caregiving, but like the way the siblings, right, really connect on and show respect for each other in that process. Like, And I don't know if you mentioned this, Sarah, but like the demographics for this community, I know it's Massachusetts, I imagining, you know, because it's research, it's, I'm curious what the pool of, of the folks were. Yeah, so the moms were 65, 75. It's Massachusetts. I want to say it's the Boston area. So the moms had to have two or more kids who were in Boston. They surveyed, uh, they also organized the data by um, birth order, and they accounted for the number of kids that were in a family. Um, So when they ran these statistics, they accounted for how large they were. On average, the primary caregiver was... Uh, more often a daughter, it was like 63%. Um, They were uh, a little more than half were college graduates and 75% of the sample was white. 75 white, you said more than half were college graduates? Mm Mm-hmm. Like 56, it's like about half, 57%. For um, uh, like uh, financial income? They controlled for education, yeah. The statistics are mostly proportions, it looks like. I don't know if they would control for that or just examine the difference in that. 
I think they did account for how many siblings there were, like the size of the family. Oh, yeah, they, they accounted for race, employment, education. And then there was probably, oh, um, like shared address, I think, if they maybe mm-hmm. shared an address with mom. Like if they were not just primary caregiver, they also accounted for whether they, I think, resided with mom, which would be a whole other level of uh, <laughs> labor and obligation. Yeah. What are you thinking, Sesson? Well, I'm just thinking the income piece seems to be important given that we're talking about, um, you know, folks who are experiencing, I think it was like serious injury or illness, right? Like how, Mm -hmm. if there's stress over finances, right? And how that really contributes to the conflict and uh, expectations involved in thinking if these are families that are, you know, relatively, like when you control for that, I think, or when you don't control for that, I think there's questions of like where some of the stress and criticism is coming from. Like we have these resources, we're not using them or we don't have these resources and we need, you know what I mean? That seems to be an important piece when accounting for, especially um, a role as a caregiver and having mm-hmm. enough yep. resources to do the job. Sure. Well, and I mean, in this country, I mean, this is Massachusetts-based data, right? Our, we rely on family caregivers to do the bulk of aging care work no, like across socioeconomic strata, right? So you're right that you could certainly um, expect that financial distress could hugely compound uh, the stress, not only of caregiving, but that that could look, that could further impact conflict that happens across who is taking on this caregiving responsibility. Yeah, 100%. Woohoo! Boo! finally time for good or bad advice where we talk about pervasive relationship advice in our culture we hear relationship advice from parents families friends we see advice about how to be in these relationships from movies and tv shows and even early morning television and we read endless advice spewed at us on all the social media blogs uh, numerous top 10 lists yada 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 as they say but gonna be a shocker you guys a lot of it just actually isn't good for our relationships this is the part of the show where we use science mind you or therapeutic skill to decide if the advice is good or bad if you have seen or heard some advice you'd like us to talk about send it to us email us at attachpodcast at gmail.com or get at us on twitter instagram facebook all at attached podcast or go to attachpodcast.com and send us a message while you're at it please rate review and subscribe to our podcast on your very favorite podcast app or youtube and as always share it with your loved ones in this case share it with your siblings they're gonna love it also Thrillingly, we have a bonus good or bad advice uh, for our Patreon subscribers. If you want that sweet, sweet bonus content, please consider becoming a member at patreon.com slash attached. So today we are going to talk about a Washington Post article about how to plan a family vacation that everyone enjoys by Naveen Martel. So this article is linked in uh, the post. But there are a lot of recommendations that Naveen has. So we're not going to go through all of them. We're going to hit some more in the bonus content. Uh, But please check out the articles to read all of them. Are you ladies ready? Okay. Okay. 
First up, longer isn't necessarily better. There isn't an expiration date on some vacation. The larger the group and the more generations involved, the shorter it should be probably. I don't want to be with that many people for too long, says Burton, who writes about cultural focused family travel on her blog. Seven days to 10 days max. After that, it's all too much. So what are we thinking? Longer isn't necessarily better. Good or bad advice? I mean, I think everything has like a point of diminishing returns. <laughs> I mean, I think that's good advice. I think um, you should be really intentional about that. I think some people will don't have the travel muscle, right? Like a couple of days is sort of all they could tolerate. And then fatigue kicks in, like the yearning for home kicks in and some people sort of check out emotionally or, you know, like are sort of, as you describe, like, or as I describe, like over it, right? Like they're, and you're still really excited. And so you just have to really have a sense of the people, everybody's energy level. If you, if you can, if you, if you have the uh, luxury of having an understanding of who all the people are that are traveling. Um, but I do, I think there's something to that. Like you, you've got to be really careful with that. Woods. I wonder if it's sort of a reverse phrasing of what I think the science shows about like the value of leisure, which is that seven to 10 days beyond that people do not report achieving like additional relaxation benefits. So it's sort of like a different way to phrase what I think the science suggests, which doesn't mean that beyond 10 days becomes a problem. It's just that I think, <laughs> I guess to use Seth's language, there's a point of diminishing return. Um, and so I also don't know how many people can afford to take vacations that are like more than seven to 10 days. The costs of that, like um, that's not something we ever did when I was a child uh, was to take like two to three weeks to go. So I think it's probably um, defined by a few factors, but that's what I'm wondering if that's like how they're interpreting what I do think yeah. has some science behind it. Okay, the next one, there are uh, kind of two I'm gonna read that feel similar to me. Uh, consider everyone and make a group decision. So consider everyone. The first question a trip planner needs to ask is whether a destination will be fulfilling for the entire family. If it's a one note place, mostly centering on a single activity or sensibility, it's not the best idea to drag everyone there. Save the trip for a solo adventure. So that's consider everyone. And then the make a group decision. Once children are old enough to have strong ideas about travel, ask everyone to suggest a couple of places that interest them. Then whittle down the list to the ones with the broadest appeal for your family. From there, either everyone can vote or you can make a decision based on other important factors such as budget and whether the destination will truly shine at the time of year you plan to visit. So what are you guys thinking on these kind of like couplet of advice, good or bad advice, Woods? I think that's probably good advice. I mean, that second one was making me a little nervous about where you were headed. Uh, I think it's valuable to, yes, not choose an activity to do together that only meets one person's needs. I think that will become quickly apparent and everyone will regret it, including the person who chose it. So your first piece of advice makes sense. The second piece of advice is making me nervous about like um, 
just imagining like my child would not pick a vacation that would be feasible. Like we're not going to the moon. I don't, she wouldn't do that. In fact, if she heard this, she'd be so offended that I would suggest. She's like, mom, do you not see my PowerPoint presentation that I just created? (laughs) I didn't teach her the animals. So I think um, the brainstorming phase makes sense. And then treating it maybe as brainstorming uh, that everyone's clear that no ideas put on the table mean we're going to do those things because you also wouldn't want to disappoint somebody it's like soliciting feedback and you're like oh but i'm not going to use any of that feedback and then people don't like that that's not a fun experience so making it clear it's brainstorming and we just all voices no bad ideas up front eventually some of them bad ideas (laughs) (laughs) is that all right that's science science susan what are your thoughts I feel like that was like a mixed bag of things that you mentioned, PR, when you first said it. Like, I was like, yes, on some, maybe on some others. So I believe, you know, you're not going to be able to make everyone happy for every destination you go. Like, you know, say you go to on a seven day trip and the itinerary at every, you know, um, on every day will not make everyone happy. And I think what I think might be helpful is to, like was advised, get everyone's opinion, but also recognize some days might be really focused on one person's need. As long as there's a sense of balance there and um, there are things along the way that everyone enjoys, but, you know, definitely moments where you realize, and I think it's okay that not everyone is going to enjoy this one thing, but it really mm-hmm. means something to one of the members. And as long as there's another opportunity on that trip, right, for someone else to have something they're excited about be, um, you know, done, that feels like balance, right? Like yeah. not every stop along the way, everybody will be excited about. For the young kids, just give them a lot of their favorite junk food. And I think for science, yeah. I, if I give uh, my son a gelato going somewhere he really doesn't like, he's fine. He's junk food. You said gelato. Oh my gosh. That was so cute. Gelato? Isn't gelato junk food? I mean, maybe. <laughs> it sounds like the classiest food. Apparently it's San Diego. Gelato is junk food. You didn't food. mean like M&M's. I was oh, thinking no. Cheetos. No, right. we don't do that. We don't do no, <laughs> Our our junk food definition is very different. Very different. If I give my son gelato, he's willing to do anything. I mean, who amongst us would say no to that? Um, I'm telling you, there are some real easy (laughs) things you could do to make a six-year-old happy. Like, I think once he gets older, it's going to be very different, you know, convincing him to do things that we want. But because you you started at gelato, I mean... (laughs) <laughs> I think you started the high end. Where do you go up from there? I don't even know Gold if flex. I wanted gelato. Where would I find gelato? No, really. Goldflex chocolate truffles is uh, the next step up here. Oh my my! Oh my God, I love it. So classy. Love it. Yeah. Stay classy, San Diego. <laughs> we will. <laughs> All right. So I think generally good advice, but it was a bit of a mixed bag, but. Um, generally good advice. And also sounds like the way that this was talking was like a single destination, but like if it's multiple destinations and trying to find that balance that best fits your family's needs. So the next one is discover the unique. Don't look for things you can find near you like zoos or amusement parks. Uh, 
seek out experiences unique to your destination that will be entertaining and educational. Travel can be a great way to broaden your children's mind. So don't miss these opportunities for enrichment. This might mean taking an art class tied to the area's culture, hiking to a -a one-of-a-kind outdoor feature, or booking a guide to give you a deep dive tour of a singular aspect of the place, such as a historic neighborhood or regional cuisine. Good or bad advice? Woods? Oh, I'm just kidding. Sesson, your turn. (laughs) I really like that advice, I think, Um, especially when it comes to food. For me, I, I really encourage really trying to step out of your comfort zone, um, avoid any chain like that, you know, you find abroad, especially when you're traveling, going to somewhere that you could find in the States to me is, I don't know what it is, but it drives me nuts when I see (laughs) people going to like a Kentucky. You're not even eating American food when you're in the U.S. though. (laughs) You went to gelato. (laughs) I don't, but it's more enraging when you travel somewhere and you're going for the (laughs) Hey, food. It's like, no, I want the most local thing that is available. And um, without saying too much, I 100% agree. You know, avoid the things you could be doing at home. You didn't travel all that way, spend all that time and money to not have like a unique experience. Was? I feel like this is an area that families could really sort of disagree on a bit Mm -hmm. right I think probably this is if we're thinking about um how to support like healthy relationships in the context of family travel I think talking out loud about what kind of experiences you want to have what kind of food you want to eat um for some families that can be a real sticking point uh so I would say making that a family conversation um, could also be probably important. Although sometimes when you open up those conversations, again, depending on the age of your kids, adult kids should be able to handle this. Um, I say that and, you know, my family really likes food. So I feel like we can talk about that sort of topic for a long time. Um, but little kids, uh, maybe you're sort of just making more choices for them. So they're not picking cheeseburgers nightly. I think this depends on what your ultimate goal for a vacation is, right? Sure. Like, is your ultimate goal of a vacation relaxing, making sure everyone has a good time uh, and or, right, it can both be, or experiencing exclusively new things and exclusively new cuisine. I tend to edge more towards the relaxation and I like to see new sites and things like that, but I also don't mind going to a zoo in a new country. Like I like to see how they, what their animals look like. What, like, I think it's a great way to like see the things about that country that's in a zoo. Like I, I, so I don't know. I've enjoyed the zoos I've gone to in foreign countries. I think it's cool. The kids like it because, oh, that's a new animal that you've never seen before. You've seen in pictures, but we're not going on a safari like so it's hard for them to uh or whatever the equivalent of safari in europe or asia is um maybe it's called the same thing i don't know uh so i don't know i think a tenor of this a little bit is um i don't know i i think it's okay i've been on a regional cuisine tour with my kids um and they got tired of it by the end it was too much new it was or too long. It was they got hot too, too long. long. So I, I don't know. I I think 
it ultimately depends on what the intention is for the experience because if you want to expose your kids to new things but they're constantly tired the entire trip they're not going to like those new things like so trying to figure out what that balance looks like and it's going to look different for every single family um i think is important too i also will say this is not a piece of advice that ever would have applied to my vacation like other than like two trips in my lifetime outside the U.S. Yeah. Or Toronto. We went to Toronto a bunch because we lived in upstate New York. Like we, there was the regional cuisine was we had clams in Massachusetts. Right. There wasn't like a, this isn't even a question that would have applied. So um, yeah, for me growing up either. No, no, for sure. Yeah, it's yeah. currently to my current family. Like they have TGI Fridays in every city. We didn't need to worry <laughs> about, about where to where we were going to get our gelato supply was never a question. <laughs> All right. So the last one is say yes to babysitting. Before the pandemic, many parents felt as if they didn't have enough time with their children. So they often didn't want to be apart for them on vacation. Now, most families feel as if they have had too much time together, so some separation can be a great benefit to a trip. Many resorts and hotels offer children's clubs or other independent activities for children, mm-hmm. although travelers should expect to pay for them. Good or bad advice? Is it Woods' turn? I think these are really fancy people. This is for them. But Woods, thoughts? We have done this a few times. Yeah. And How did I it was work? nervous the first time we did it and it was amazing you definitely have to pay for it i don't know what that suggestion is you might have to pay like would you want to not pay like you just <laughs> just send whoever you have downstairs up watch my kid um i i don't know where the accent came from um i think this actually is like uh really cool when they you have the opportunity to do this because it can um especially when you're thinking about like developmentally younger kids sometimes it's better for them to you know get some rest while y'all go to like an adult timed dinner that's not at 5 p.m uh sometimes ooh, adults need hot that ooh, ooh, ooh so adult special time i thought you were about to say adult <laughs> themed i was like my sarah <laughs> uh yes um no yeah i just think You're sometimes like oh so sorry Dustin. thoughts uh, um yeah sign me up and genuinely um for the adult themed dinners. Those and for the childcare. Um, I've also been hearing about camps, um, like international camps, where if you're traveling for a certain number of weeks, you can enroll your child during the day. But it's, again, it's expensive, I imagine. So it's not something you have to really prepare for financially. Um, but um, yeah, as long as it's a trusted sort of service, I think it's a great idea if you're traveling with children to have a little time if you can just Mm -hmm. for you and your partner you can just experience where you are a little differently too you're not really sort of working to focus on where you are and parent at the same time it just takes you know some of the edge off of that I appreciate Uh, everything that you guys are saying I'm going to be the opposite uh or just personally you you guys do whatever you want I don't care uh but David and I were both on the same page that we are not interested in having our children out of our sight when we're oh, on sure. an, a trip to the point where, so do you not trust? Cause she said, Oh, why don't you and your husband go out to dinner or something like that? I was like, no, 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 we're good. And mom said, do you not trust us alone with them? 
I said, no, that is not the issue. The issue, that's not the issue. The issue is we have so much anxiety about imagine if something were to happen to one of them and I wasn't there and it was mm-hmm. just you. Like I would never be able to handle that ever. So my anxiety was just far too high. I'm not saying that anybody else's anxiety should be this high. It was that we just never did it. Um, but we are planning trips by ourselves where the kids stay home. Um, but, um, I think, uh, everybody has their opinion, whatever your comfort level is, like you both said, I think is what you should do and don't feel guilty about doing it by any means. I think it, people have a great experience with it, but also if you are more relaxed, not doing it, I think that's okay too. Uh, Go with whatever makes you most comfortable, I think. And I said that to myself explicitly. Well, as always, thanks for listening to Attached. Remember, call us, email us, or get at us on all those social medias about any relationship advice you've received that you're wondering whether to follow or pass on. We cannot wait to talk about it.